Last week, we started a series that we titled, Let's Get Started. And essentially, the hope or the goal was to start 2024 uh, with an eye towards some very specific spiritual disciplines, uh, the, the, the practices, the habits that the church has uh, put into place for some 2,000 years now to grow and to form uh, our hearts and souls before Jesus as his disciples. The, the, the hope of spiritual discipline is not just to be disciplined for discipline's sake. The hope of spiritual discipline is that as we practice these things, the Lord takes our, our posture that we've assumed before him in, in habit and in rhythm and, and shapes us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. He, he sanctifies us through these processes. He makes us uh, holy, makes us, makes us new, matures us in the faith, um, ultimately helps us to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And so last week as we started this series, we started with what is probably the most foundational spiritual discipline that you see uh, from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible, and that is the discipline of prayer. We talked about how in 2024 we want to pray in, in, in a new and increasingly uh, habitual fashion. We want to pray in a way that calls upon God as our, as our Heavenly Father, but also acknowledges His transcendence and His sovereignty and we looked at the pattern that Jesus gave to his disciples about how to pray and how he beckoned them to find a place to pray, to go to a specific place at a specific time and connect with God there and how our prayer lives are mostly formed in private so that who we are in public is changed, shaped and made into the image and likeness of Jesus. Well, today we're going to look at what we're going to go from probably the most popular and most focused upon spiritual discipline to maybe the most neglected or swept under the rug spiritual discipline, the discipline of giving. And it seems weird because most of the time when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we think of things that are about personal, private piety, like prayer, like meditation, which we're going to look at next week, like uh, fasting, like worship, things that are kind of uh, all about you and your one-on-one -on -one relationship with the Lord. But if you look at the ministry of Jesus, and if you look at the book of Acts as we're about to, and you see what happens when people practice following Jesus in public... Perhaps the most common refrain that we see of what occurs when someone trusts in Christ and begins to follow him as a disciple is that they become generous. The, the, the scripture records over and over and over again that the life of a disciple is a life that is marked by not just sporadic generosity, by, but by habitual and radical generosity. I'm going to contend this morning that one of, if not the most preeminent uh, emphasis that the, that the New Testament makes on what, what shows up in a person's life when they trust Jesus by faith is that they start giving. They start giving stuff away. And so we have one such episode here in Acts chapter 4. I could have started in Acts chapter 2 and shown you this. We could go to Acts chapter 6. You could see this. We could go throughout the rest of the book of Acts, this, the, the, the lineage of the early church, the history recorded by the gospel writer Luke about what God did when the church became a thing. And almost in every instance, when the Holy Spirit shows up and the people trust, by, trust Jesus by faith and they repent of their sins, the next thing we see them doing is giving their stuff away. Look with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. Luke records, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, I'm going to just rip the band-aid off today. No funny stories or anecdotes. We're going to talk about giving, which means I've got to be serious, right? Uh, I, we don't talk about money a whole lot at Living Hope. It's partly by conviction. It's partly by just walking through the scriptures verse by verse. Sometimes it shows up, sometimes it may not. But one of the reasons is just because I have an aversion to this topic from some of my, my, my background in the faith. There was a, a brief stint whenever I had kind of dabbled in way back when in college and like more like... Uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, televangelism type ministries. In fact, I was ordained by such a guy who wound up going to prison for tax fraud. That's another story for another day. I guess I did tell you something funny. Anyway, uh, there was this, I had this strong revulsion against like preaching and teaching where if you just give, then God will bless you and you give to get. Man, I still to this day, I recoil against that. However, the longer I've been a student of the scriptures and the longer that I've studied the Bible and, and taught it publicly, the more I see, man, you just can't avoid this subject. It just keeps coming up. The ministry of Jesus is uh, just littered with examples of him warning people about the dangers of greed and the dangers of consuming and materialism. And, and the, the, the story of the early church is a story of radical generosity that impacted the world and caused the outside world to look upon them and say, why would they act like that? It makes no sense. And so today, I just want to answer that question for you before we get going. It's like, why do we got to talk about this? What's, what's, really, what, what's really the point? Now, uh, part of the, 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 the difficulty in studying the New Testament and then entering into our world 2000, some 2,000 years later is that so often we see that in, in New Testament time, it's an agrarian culture, it's a hand-to-mouth culture. When they're talking about money and, and stuff, they're talking about giving like literal grain and oil and seeds, like sustenance that people needed to survive. And yet we live in a place where there is ample supply of pretty much everything. And, and because of the way our, our society is engineered, the way our government works, you're probably not going to go hungry in, in our particular country in this particular day and age. It's like go, in fact, go, global pro- poverty is on the decline uh, across the world. So how do we make sense of this? I mean, when we have kind of what we need, and I hope you got what you needed because if you didn't go to the store sometime in the last two days, nothing is left. <laughs> My wife did that awful thing where she said, hey, I know you're out right now. Can you just run by the Kroger and get some toilet paper? And I'm like, honey, it's the zombie apocalypse in there. There's not going to be any toilet paper. You know, go look in your glove box and see if we got napkins. We'll make it. I'm not going to Kroger. <laughs> but that, that's, we live in an age of abundance. And so how is it then that we still need to be talking about things like money and generosity? Well, it's because the human heart despite the fact that we may have everything that we need and all of our, a lot of our wants even lined up for ourselves, the human heart really craves three things, and it, we can't stop it. It craves freedom, it craves security, and it craves power. And money is the quickest pathway to those three things outside of faith in Jesus Christ. It craves freedom. If I get enough money, then I get to choose what I do with my time. 
I don't have to go to work. If I win the Powerball, I get to do whatever I want whenever I want. That's Money is the access point to maximizing freedom for most of us. It craves security. How do I know that when the zombie apocalypse happens or a, you know, a slight chance of snow in the south happens, that I'll have what I need in the bank to make it through the next 48 to 72 hours. Well, money. Money will give you a little bit of security if you have that. I don't know whenever I you know, get beyond working years that I'll be okay. That's money. Power. How do I know that I'm going to get to make some decisions? How do I know that other people won't be making decisions for me? That's money. And not only that, the, the threat of money creeping into our heart. You see, this is the problem in the age of abundance is that greed is insidious. Like it, we can all, no matter what your financial standing is this morning, we all know someone who is better, more, more uh, you know, financially wealthy than we are. They're better off than we are. We, we live in an age where you can live on a street and be doing really, really well, but you can say, there's no way I'm greedy because look at how much square footage they have. There's no way I could be greedy. Look what they drive. And, and so it, it can just creep into our hearts. It can seduce us, and it can, in some ways, blind us to reality, to the reality of things like death even. We've come to believe in our day and age that we can accrue so much stuff that we can, we can continue on after we've died via money. I read a quote about that just this last week. William Williman was writing about it, and he talks, references Ernest Becker, a thinker who, who wrote about these things back in the 20th century. He says, Ernest Becker noted that as belief in God and other traditional sources of immortality eroded in Western culture, money assumed a godlike quality in our lives, our ticket to enduring significance in the face of death. We sometimes say in the face of materialism, you can't take it with you. But that observation does not defeat our materialism. It just reveals its source. We cannot take things with us as we go into the oblivion of death, but we can pass financial power onto our offspring. We endow a chair at the university or we have a pew named for us at church. Money is thus, in Becker's words, our immortality ideology, our modern means of ensuring that even if I must die, my name, my family, my achievements, my power will continue after I'm gone. That's why we got to talk about it, because that, that thing lives in all of us. That, that suspicion that, that somehow I can get power, freedom, security via money. And this isn't new this is, this is not something that the New Testament is oblivious to. In fact, if we would have kept reading last week, last week we were in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' is pr probably most condensed and, and, and tight packaging of what discipleship looks like for followers of his. And we talked about how he taught his disciples about prayer. After he teaches them about prayer, he teaches them about giving. And he says, hey, when you give, don't sound a trumpet at the, as the hypocrites do. In fact, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do it in secret. And then he immediately launches into worrying about stuff. And he says in Matthew chapter 6, who of you by worrying can add a single day to your life? Consider the birds of the air. Consider the flowers of the field. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Or he says it like this specifically in verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures, treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. For you'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God 
and money. And so Jesus says, if you're going to be my follower, you're going to have to make a decision. And the good news of what I think Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the New Testament plays out for us in practice is that God has given us the discipline of giving, not because he wants something from us, but because he has something for us. He wants us to be released from the death grip of greed that, if we're real honest with ourselves, is always whispering in our ears and knocking on our hearts. It's always, you know, one slight moment of anxiety away from saying, yeah, if I could just earn a little bit more, if I could just get the promotion, if I could just hit the lottery, then I'll have the freedom that I want, the power that I want, or the security that I think I need. So that's why we've got to talk about giving. And that's also why I want to encourage you this morning to get started on making giving a practice, a spiritual discipline that forms your heart and soul into this new year. Again, I'm not saying that because I want something from you. I don't know what anyone in this church gives. I've never known, and I hope I never will know, but I want something for you. I want you to be released from the bondage of the corruptive lie that creeps in that says you're just a few dollars away from more power, more freedom, or more security. So Acts chapter 4 is one of the places I could go to. It's one of my favorite places to go to because of the way Luke, the gospel writer, packs all this stuff in and this one story about the, the apostles and, and the early church giving and specifically Barnabas liquidating some assets for the sake of the needy in their midst. And so I want to show you three reasons why I think Christians should practice giving as not just a spiritual discipline to form our souls, but also as a passageway to true freedom, true power, and true security, because that's what God gives us in Christ. So the first thing that we see here, we practice giving quite simply because we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke, Luke writes the book of Acts. He also writes the gospel of Luke. And he makes, makes no reservations about this one-to-one correlation between the Holy Spirit filling the hearts and lives of disciples of Jesus and the practice of giving being the evidence of that. In virtually every page of the book of Acts, when the Spirit falls upon people and fills them with power, the next thing Luke records that he sees them doing is they start giving stuff away. The evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelling the heart and life of a believer is generosity. We saw it here. I included verse 31, even though it's sort of about this previous section where the, 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 the church begins praying for boldness in the face of persecution. And they, they do that in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, Luke says, so catch that. Verse 32 is really important. It starts with now. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what happens next? What's the evidence of the Spirit filling their life? Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they held all things or everything in common. And Luke says there wasn't a needy person amongst them. The evidence of the Spirit working in that local church was that the needy were taken care of by those who had more than they needed. Now, I'd love to sugarcoat this for you in some way, I would love to say, maybe you can grow into this, but what Luke tells us and what the gospel of Luke tells us is that when the Holy Spirit invades our hearts, our hands are opened. Those two things are synced. They happen simultaneously. People follow Jesus, Spirit comes into their life, they get generous. It's just the way it works according to the book of Acts. 
Now, it's important to note this because I've already mentioned it several times, but Luke is the gospel writer of the gospel of Luke and also the writer of Acts. And I think that that's important. I'm not going to tell you to go do this today, but if you get snowed in next 48 hours, you got some time to spare, start reading in Luke chapter 1 and read all the way to Acts chapter 28. I dare you. It's a long ways, but you can do it. And you'll notice something. Luke, the gospel writer, Luke is writing to a specific individual, a man named Theophilus. We don't know hardly anything about him from, from history. He just opens up both his gospel and the book of Acts with, oh, great Theophilus. Now, here's what we do know. We know that Luke is most likely a doctor, medical doctor of some sort. He's a pretty smart guy. He writes really good, really well. See, I don't know, in Greek. Um, and in order for him to be commissioned to write a chronicle of the life of Jesus in the beginning of the early church, whoever commissioned him had to have ample resources. Probably this guy, Theophilus, rolled deep, right? He's probably a heavy hitter. He's a high roller. He's got some money. So Luke is writing to a specific audience, this man, Theophilus, who is wealthy. And you'll notice when you read Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel, in light of all the other gospels, mentions money at like four or five times the, 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 the amount of times. Like it's got, it's got five, five teachings of Jesus about money that are unique in all the gospels and only show up in Luke's gospel. One of, you, one of them you're probably somewhat familiar with, the parable, uh, or I'm sorry, the story of the rich young ruler. That's only in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel mentions money on virtually every other page. And, and what Luke is doing there is he's teaching Theophilus, look, you've been blessed. You have resources. But when Jesus came and taught, he talked a lot about the, the, deceptive, the deceptive power of wealth and the way that you can find your comfort and your security and your freedom and your wealth. So he lines up the teaching of Jesus in such a way as to where Jesus is constantly and continually warning about the allure of greed in the human heart. And then when Luke starts telling what happened, when the Holy Spirit filled the early church, he starts showing Theophilus, look, if you're going to trust Christ by faith, if you're going to repent of your sins and turn and follow Jesus, this is what it looks like. Those that had ample resources in the early church started liquidating those things to those who were in need. Their, the Spirit filled their hearts and their hands immediately opened. In other words, he's painting a picture of discipleship that is for Theophilus. It'll be true for him as well. He tells the ministry of Jesus in a way that will confront Theophilus' idols, perhaps, the things that he's held on to, the stuff that he clutches for freedom or for power or for, for security. And he says, look, if you want to follow Jesus, this is what it looks like. The power of the Holy Spirit is in, in, the, in the early church was demonstrated through their generosity. When you see the, the book of Acts talking about the demonstration of the power of the Spirit, the immediate implication is that the church becomes a generous people. You want to know that the Holy Spirit has taken root in this particular place and this, these particular people? Watch and see how generous they become. Luke is very clear about that. He wants, he wants Theophilus to have no misunderstanding of what it's going to cost him to follow Jesus. But not just what he's going to have to give, what he's going to get True power, true freedom, and true security. The stuff that you really long for that you think money gives you, only Jesus can actually grant to you. Secondly, we practice giving not just because the Holy Spirit's filled our hearts and lives. We practice giving because we are bound together. We're bound to one another in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. That's what Luke says here. Whenever the, the, the full member of those who believed were together, they were of what? Verse 32, of one heart and soul. There's this miraculous thing that transpires upon faith and trust in Jesus amongst a group of radically divergent people. 
Again, we don't have the time this morning, but if you get snowed in, read the rest of the book of Acts. Luke draws attention over and over and over again to the the types of people that gather together in the local church. So we see it way back in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is this uh, famous passage that opens up that the Holy Spirit fills the the apostles. The apostles begin boldly proclaiming the good news of King Jesus. Some two or 3,000 are are together, and, and they hear this good news. It says, Luke records, that men from all over the known world at that time were gathered together, and they heard the good news in their own language as, as Peter was preaching, and they repent, and they believe, and then the next thing that happens, Luke says, they were all together, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and, and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. And they all had all things in common. There was, a, was not a needy person among them. All these people from different backgrounds, different, different nations, different ethnicities, different walks of life, different socioeconomic statuses, most likely, they're together and they love one another and they're sharing. Why? Because the Spirit has bound them together. They now have a newfound responsibility to one another because God has adopted them. And when God adopts us, we're family. And it's the story of John's gospel. When John opens up in John chapter 1, he says, we're born not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man. We're born of God. God adopts us and calls us his own. And when he does, we now have some mutual reciprocity with one of us. We, 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 we give to one another. We take care of one another. We carry one another's burdens. Again, the New Testament is littered with the responsibilities we have for one another. Why? Because God has made us brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is our our true and faithful elder brother. God is our Father who's adopted us as his own. The Spirit binds us together. When we repent, when we're baptized, we're immediately brought into this thing called family, and we start sharing with each other. It's what we see Barnabas do here. Barnabas is a Cypriot. he's, He's from a different tribe. He's a Levite. Luke is recording these things on purpose. This is a guy from high-rolling, uh, high-ranking part of Jewish society, and he's from a, a different place. Doesn't matter. Spirit moves in his heart and life. He sails a field and brings the proceeds and lays it at the apostles' feet to take care of those who are in need. Luke shows you that family prioritizes people, not possessions. When we're bound together by the Spirit, we put a priority on one another, not on the stuff that we possess or the stuff that we've accrued. You know, the easiest way to demonstrate this is just in your own family, right? If you have kids, my kids probably sometime between 27 and 35 times a day will walk into a room and say, Dad, I'm hungry. And every time I will respond as every good dad does, hi, hungry, I'm dad. (laughs) Never gets old. Now, they think it does. I love it every time. But what kind of father would I be if when I said, Dad, I'm hungry? I'm like, well, it's kind of brisk out there. Good luck. Go for a little jaunt down to Kroger and see if you can make it without frostbite. And what you can pick up. You got any money? No. I ha- it's assumed that as their father, I have a responsibility to feed them. Now, we may not have what they want, which in my house seems to only be chicken tenders. <laughs> God help us. Um, but I can... But, but I have a responsibility to meet those needs. I have a responsibility to take care of them. Now, if you take that dynamic and you play it out in the body of Christ, and if God truly is our Father and we truly are brother, brothers and sisters, and someone prays a prayer, Father, I'm hungry, I think he's going to have you look around the room. I think he's probably put someone in your midst who can meet needs, someone in your midst who has been sent by the Spirit to be in that place for that time, whom he has resourced, whom he has blessed, so that they can 
help meet those needs and take care of those things. And it's one of the the oddities, I think, of the the early church and hopefully of the church and even in our day that should set us apart as different in the world, where, where we have this mutual responsibility and reciprocity with one another, but no one, because we're saved by grace, no one has to has has to has to go without in, in, a, in a place where we're supplied by the same heavenly father where we look out and we look for needs and we seek to meet those needs we're bound to one another the spirit ties us together unites us by faith in christ such that we take care of one another i think i probably shared this story before but when i was 21 22 years old i made a drastic move at the time i was living in arkansas kind of helping out with a church plant and I decided the, the pastor that was going to disciple me and mentor me had extended an opportunity for me to just move up to where he was, attend his church, get a job, finish school, and he would teach me everything that he knows. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. So I went and quit my job. I was working at a bookstore at the time. I got my final check. I think it was like $280. Uh, it was a really cold snap. It was in January like this. And I go, I load up all my stuff. And I'm going to go, you know, move to Oklahoma City, live with some friends and, and go be discipled by this pastor. And the water pump on my car goes out. And so I go to my mechanic and he tells me what it's going to cost. And I'm like, hey, man, I just got my last paycheck. I don't start another job for a couple of weeks. This is all I got. And he's like, okay, that'll work. And so I take every, literally every penny that I have left. I get my water pump fixed. I drive all the way up to three, four hours away to Oklahoma City. I pull into town with all my belongings basically in the back of my car. No money in the bank whatsoever. And I don't start work for another week or so. And I get there and the pastor's like, hey, man, how was your trip? And I said, well, it's kind of rough. What happened? A water pump went out. I spent all my money. I got to start work. I think I'll be okay. I got, you know, got some, some, some craft cheese slices and some white bread. You know, I'll make it. And that night, we were at Sunday night church, just a smattering of the really dedicated folks that came to Sunday night church back in the day showed up. And my pastor goes up and he says, hey, before I preach, we got a new guy who just kind of moved to town. He rolled in on his last nickel, just got his water pump replaced. He needs some money to make it through, through the week. If any of y'all would like to help him afterwards, he'll be in my office. And I was like, what? I didn't ask you to do that. And I walked in and this sweet little old lady came in and she's like, what do you need? And I was like, oh, ma'am, I'm, I'm okay. If I just had a little bit of gas money to get back and forth to work. And she's like, okay, let me ask this different. Now, what do you need? What do you want? And I was like, oh, no, ma'am, I could never, <laughs> could never do that. I was raised differently. And she's like, okay, here, and she pulls out some money. She's like, here's what I'm going to give you. Here's my phone number. If this doesn't get you through until you get your first paycheck, call me. I'll take care of you. And I was blown away. And I looked at my pastor friend, and he's like, this is what the church was meant to do and be. And so forever now, moving forward, I'm like, if I can keep my eyes on the horizon, if I can see need, if I can be aware of those for whom they've fallen on hard times or something's cropped up in their life, we're bound together. We share the same spirit. And this last point is a very, very important point that Luke points out that is the, the catalyst, that's the trigger that helps us let go of security and power and freedom that we think money will give us and enables us to be that for others. It says simply this, we practice giving because, giving because we've been given so much grace. Like that is the thing, this thing that flips the switch. In this church, in every church, when people are awakened to the grace that they have received in Christ Jesus, giving becomes a discipline for them, becomes a practice. Because the gospel always frees us from the snare of greed. It's what it was designed to do. 
We read this passage just a minute ago in our liturgy, but I'm going to read it to you again because it's a very profound passage. It's the passage I almost preached from this morning. The Apostle Paul, in writing what we know as the second letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, he's writing that letter primarily because of two things. One, he is suffering greatly. And the church at Corinth has become uh, deluded into believing that to be a true apostle, you've got to always be hitting grand slams. Like they have bought this lie that if you're really kind of the health and wealth gospel, if you're really following Jesus, really doing well, you'll never, never fall on hard times. And so Paul's writing them a letter to tell them that's not true at all. In fact, following Jesus means chapter 10, chapter 12, we're always being given over to a death like his so that in a death like his, we may extend life into your life. We're pressed, but not crushed. We're persecuted, not abandoned. We're struck down, but not, we're not destroyed. So Paul's educating them on the life of discipleship, that it will be hard and difficult. And you should expect that. But he's also writing them to raise money. He's raising money not for himself. He's raising support for the church in Jerusalem, which has been befallen by a famine. And he's raised money for, for that church in a while. And he's, he's coming to Corinth because they're wealthy, because they have means. Because if they can clue into the fact that that church isn't suffering because of something bad they did, but because so that God can use this church to help that church be the church that God intended for them to be, and in so doing, make both of them more like Jesus, that's what he's writing them about. And that's where he says what we, what we read in our liturgy. I say this to you not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his, you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul says this isn't a command. I'm not saying give or else. I'm saying so because if you've truly experienced the love of God in your life, if you truly know the grace that Jesus, who though he was rich, he became poor for my sake so that through his poverty I might become rich, Paul says, guess what happens? I don't do this to coerce you. I don't do this to manipulate you. you. I do this just to say if you truly have experienced grace, I'm giving you a place to direct your funds so that you can see love in action in the lives of these other people. I love the way Tim Keller talks about it. He says, what's the bottom line? You will always give money effortlessly to that which is your God. If you see that your salvation is in Jesus, then your attitude toward money is, I want to give it away in radical and drastic proportions. I want to change people's lives through it. It's not mine. On the other hand, if your salvation is your clothes, if your salvation is your looks, if your salvation is romance, if your salvation is your own status, if your salvation is security in life, then you're going to hold on to that money and it's going to go effortlessly to those things which are your real God. Your money is a bottom line. It tells you where your salvation is. It tells you what your real religion is. And it may come across like a ton of bricks this morning, but I think it's true because Jesus said it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's why Barnabas, upon being filled with the Spirit, says, this is the greatest thing I have ever experienced. I got this piece of property that I was, you know, maybe looking to retire on one day, but I would rather be here with these people seeing God do his work than, you know, have that spot. So he goes and sells it, liquidates it, gives it to the apostles so they can continue meeting needs and continue seeing the kingdom of God come to fruition in their day. So I'm going to ask you to do one thing. As we've said each week, we want to make this as practical as, as possible. For Let's get started in 2024. I'm going to ask you to just make giving active and intentional. What do I mean by that? I think for most Christians, 
Giving is usually passive and sporadic. And what I mean by that is that it's passive. If someone doesn't ask for it, you're probably not looking for ways to give it away. Now, we live in a place where you're probably being asked for money all the time. I get 17 emails a day from my kid's school about something that I need to give money to. Surprise, surprise. That's, what, that's what's up. But if someone doesn't ask you for it, you're probably not giving. In the early church, we see a more active posture rather than a passive one. They're liquidating assets possibly before there are even needs because they know the needs will always come. So they're active in doing that. They're, they're proactive in giving, not just when someone asks, but whenever a need arises. They've already set aside the funds to make that happen. And they're intentional. It's not sporadic. It's not just when I feel like it. Seems to be, if, again, we follow it out through the book of Acts, just the way the church operated when they gathered. It's why weekly we take an offering. Not because we think we're going to get more money that way. It's because it needs to be an intentional practice and an exercise just like praying. Because this is the mechanism God has often used to open up our hearts, to free us from the deceptive grip of greed, thinking that our money will finally give us security, freedom, or power. So Father, this morning I pray for just that. I pray for our hearts to be open such that we will put into practice what it means to be generous. To give in a way that reflects the way you've given to us. You held nothing back. You gave it all. And so, Lord, would we, would we view our finances not as a means to small g gods, but as things that you've blessed us with so that we can be a blessing to others? And, Lord, would 2024 look different? Would it be a, a season where we grow in faith because we've trusted our, our stuff to you, knowing that you only want, to, want something for us. You don't want something from us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.